Welcome to the PivotCast. This episode was recorded on February 28th, 2019 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Adrian Derleon, Prefna Lord, Kern Carter, and Therese Pierre. Just so you know, this episode contains a bit of strong language. Listener's discretion is advised. Kern is the author of two novellas, Thoughts of a Fractured Soul, and his most recent novel entitled Beauty Scars. His CRY blog touches on the emotional struggle faced by writers and other creatives. His goal is to inspire readers and impress his fellow writers, which I'm sure he will do tonight. Okay, Kern. Hello. I thought this is my first time reading at Pivot. I'm going to read like a little bit from my first book. Thoughts for a Fractured Soul, and then I'll read a little bit from my second book, and then maybe, maybe, maybe I have a manuscript I might read a little bit from that too. So this is Beauty Scars. Just some quick kind of context. This scene is a girl named Treasure, and she's been sick for a very long time. She's just coming back home because she went to spend a couple of days with her lover whose name is Samantha, and um, she's tra- just coming back home to her boyfriend named Justin. So she's trying to like calm him down a little bit. So here we go. I'm actually feeling better now. Not better exactly, stronger I should say. Day by day I feel more like myself. Don't ask me where all this energy is coming from, I have no idea. Neither do the doctors. And what does it really matter anyway? Fact is I feel good. I do. And it's been weeks since my last session. I should be feeling like but I don't. Not physically. Justin though. Justin, Justin, Justin. Talk about taking this hard. You think he was the one that just went through how many months of radiation? You think he's the one who needed support all the way through? That his, that his life changed dramatically? It did a little bit, but only because mine changed forever. So now he punishes me. Because being sick wasn't punishment enough. He expected me to be sick and polite. Sick and unselfish. Sick and still lovable or caring. Or give a damn about whatever the f*** he's going through, trying to deal with my sickness. I sound angry, but I'm really not. I feel good. I don't even know why I feel this good, but I do. Justin will come around. As soon as he realizes this thing isn't about him, that none of my actions have anything to do with him, I do what I do so I can get through each day. If that means staying somewhere else for a few days, then so be it. And yeah, I probably should have checked in, sent a quick text to let him know that I'm still thinking about him, that I'm just taking some time. But why? Why do I need to remind him of that? I didn't do this kind of thing before I was sick, so why should I feel forced to do it to do it now? But no, he wants explanations. He wants to feel like he's the one helping me get through this. He wants to feel special and let he wants to feel special and let me know he can handle me being sick. Wait, wait, let me stop. Just for one second, let me stop so I don't sound like a complete bitch. Because I am in love with this guy, still. And I'm lucky he cares enough to want to be the difference. But that's not what I need, not from him. I just need him to be there when I need someone there. I know that sounds like I know that sounds like standby, like I'm kind of treating him like a side piece or an affair, but I don't see it like that. I'm just trying to feel better, and wherever that leads me, that's where I'll go. But I know the same goes for him too. And I know what makes Justin feel better. I feel a burn every time I think about every time I think about him sitting next to her, or her sitting next to him. A deep burn like I'm still in that goddamn time machine. But I'm not, but I'm not that worried. It's more my it's more my pride than anything. And I know she's just a taste, not a threat. They probably hooked up and I knew they've been together. I'll give them a hall pass on this one. I know that I'm the one. Back to being beautiful. I'm in I'm in the mirror now, getting pretty for no reason. Not overdoing it though, not me. I just need to look great always now. Every time, Justin walks, every time Justin walks through that door, I need him to look at me. Look at me the way he did when, he found, when we found each other. So I'm back on his lap again when we're on the couch. I'm back staring at him till he jumps me. He's back counting my beauty marks every morning, new ones each sunrise. Some spots he touches tickles, others make me shake. Where have you been? He says this to me one morning. I missed you so much. Guys. They say the most insensitive things without even knowing. I let it slide, though. I have been missing for a while. A lost treasure, if you will. 
and he's been digging and digging and I've been hiding away in Samantha's tomb. But I'm here now, and so is Justin, and so are our feelings. Not like they ever left, but it was hard to feel anything other than pain for so many months. Now that pain is gone, and neither of us know how long, and neither, neither of us care how long. All we care about is that the pain is gone, or on hold. Doctors are saying that everything looks good for now, but that'll, but that'll eventually need more surgery, serious surgery. The only word I hear is eventually, which means not now, so I don't even think about it. I think about Justin and how he's thinking about me, only me. I can feel it. I could hear it in the way he talks to me, the way he says treasure like that's exactly what I am. And that is exactly what I am and who I am. I know that. But now that awareness means more to me than ever before. But there's a problem, Samantha. Not a problem like she's purposely stirring up trouble. I just can't help myself when I'm around her. And even when I'm not around her, I want to be like she's holding some part of me hostage and dangling it sub subliminally in my mind. I can't call it temptations because it's not. It's deeper than that. Somewhere between love and lust, a white cloud floating below a blue sky. That's us. And I'm starting to feel guilty, so that means there's something. Something there that shouldn't be. But she means too much to me to just give her up because, some, because of some asinine feeling for Justin. I'm going to stop there with that one. <laughs> Okay, so this is the very beginning. This book is like, it's based, it was based on, I wrote it a very long time ago. I started writing it in 2007. I finished it, I published it in 2014. But it was based, um, based on my life, but very fictionalized. So I tell people the characters are real, but the situations and all the interactions are made up. Um, but it's very, very, very close to my heart, this book. Um, it's your first, right? So I still love it. So I'm going to read the, um, the very, very, very beginning of it. And then I'm going to like skip all the way to pretty much the end of it because those two parts, I think, they kind of connect. I've been here before. Though I can't remember exactly when or for how long, I know I've been here. My mother carried me in her womb hundreds of miles to this very place. And as I exited the airplane for the second time, I acted as if this wasn't anything new. I watched curiously as my older brother got excited, blowing cold air out of his mouth though most of my attention was centered somewhat in the distance where a group of tall trees stood, their branches bare, illuminated by the melted snow. The branch that kept me still, however, had kept all of its leaves, and as I looked at this fire-red tree blaze in the midst of the cold weather, I realized, even at that time, there was something odd about the entire scene. My daze was interrupted seconds later when my brother blew his frosty breath in my face. I chased him through the tunnel that led inside the airport, I remember looking back outside for that tree and not being able to see it through the window. Today I debate with myself whether it was there in the first place. If you knew me, it wouldn't be a stretch to think I imagined the entire thing. So the, what the book is about really, it's about, um, this, I, I, I say there's two things. There's a very surface story to the book where it's just about a teenage father like trying to struggle to figure out his life and figure out his relationship with his, mother, his uh, daughter's mother and figure out his relationship with his girlfriend. Like that's the very like, kind of surface story. Um, the deeper story is really about failure. That's how I see it. Like when I was, when I was young. <laughs> Growing up to me, like the, the scariest thing for me was um, being stagnant or like just not growing, right? That's scared, that's really scared me. And it's weird that like I kind of um, impressed that into the book, you know what I mean? Like, and for me, or the character in this book, his name is Ace, he does get, um, He's very stagnant, like he doesn't get anywhere. And for me, that was just, it's scary. Even thinking about it, to be honest, is really scary. Like I always feel like I want to be progressing and doing something something meaningful with everything that I write or anything that I read or whatever. Okay, so here's the part that I want to read. So this is near the ending. Uh, let me, uh, you do need a little bit of con context. Um, it's Ace, his girlfriend, not the daughter of his mother. So A is his girlfriend and his daughter, and they're all just like, you'll see what's going on. Um, his daughter's name is Maya. There's a bridge that I drove to on the Monday of every Canada Day long weekend. It's a routine I started the year Maya was born and continues to this day. I love being on that bridge because I could see three and sometimes four different fireworks shows all in different directions. One Saturday and 
one Saturday and Sunday, I brought Maya with me to whichever, on Saturday or Sunday, I brought Maya with me to whichever festivities were going on around the city. Rib fest, amusement parks, live bands, anything just to be around some people. Once Shay came into my life, we spent the long weekend Sundays having picnics at the park. Shay made grated cheese sandwiches for Maya, which she absolutely loved and begged for days after the picnic, and corned beef sandwiches for herself and me. Shay couldn't wait for these picnics. She carried a huge blanket big enough for at least 10 people to fit on, although it was always just the three of us. She bought us all, to, she bought us all what she called vacation hats, which were actually just sombreros, a different one each year we went, and carried all the food and drink in a small gift basket. We would be out there for hours eating mini sandwiches and drinking wine Shay put in empty water bottles. I enjoyed those picnics, cracking jokes, telling stories, watching Maya run around the park picking at snails and worms with small branches that doubled as a magic wand that turned her, turned her into the pink princess. But Monday was my time. I always drove to the bridge alone, sitting on the ledge at about five minutes to ten. A narrow river ran underneath and I could hear every sound the current made on its path. My only light was the moon and its faint reflection on the water below. No one else was ever there, which I felt was odd because it was such a beautiful scene. When the first firework shot through the sky at exactly 10, my eyes were glued. Green and red flashes with white tails, bursts of bright colors forming shapes that lingered in the sky before another blast with even more colors took its place. The sounds were like soft missiles and harmless explosions. Those moments were, those moments were everything for me. I always left before the fireworks were over. I never wanted to see the lights leave the sky. Anything seemed possible in those moments and my thoughts often forced the emotions through my eyes. I wondered how something so fleeting could be so memorable. Okay, I have one more passage I'm gonna read for you guys. This is like pretty much the very end. Actually, two more passages. I see one that I wanna read too. This used to be me. So this is Ace and he's just like looking this is this is weird. This is actually something that really happened. So this is not made up. This is one of the scenes like this twenty part twenty percent of this book is actually real. This is one of the parts that are actually real. Um and he's like Ace is looking through the fence and he's looking at his daughter. And his daughter went to the same elementary school that he went to. So it's just like kind of reaffirming how stuck he is in his life. He feels like everything's just the same. Like he's looking at he's looking at himself, um, or looking at his life and feeling like he's stuck. It's a short passage. This used to be me. I see them all through the fence running back and forth in the schoolyard playing touch tag. I see some of them in the corner whispering secrets to each other, secrets of crushes and dreams, wishes and gossip. This used to be me. I see them through the fence. They do as they are told. Hurry up to line up single file when the bell rings. Fill their knapsacks with the day's lessons to take home to parents that give more instructions. They listen. They listen because they believe that anything is possible. They've been told that over and over and over again that they can do anything, be anything, that nothing, nothing is out of reach, everything is possible. I used to be them. And I'll take you to the last scene. I wanna read from here. I kept my thumb on the lighter and stared at the flame. I'm lying in bed with the blunt dangling from my mouth unlit. My room door is closed and the window half open. Thoughts run through my mind. Nothing I could grasp, nothing I can hold on to. I put the lighter to the tip of the blunt. A cloud of smoke rises and fades away, fades away till I make another, till I take another puff. I feel overwhelmed even though I don't feel, actually feel anything at all. I take another puff, then another. The clouds begin to linger and spread around the room. Some ashes have fallen absently on my chest. I think of an escape. Thank you. Prathna Lore. Prathna is a living poet. Their most recent chapbook, 7-2, is now out from Knife Fork Books in Kensington Market. They write the love poems you've not yet written to yourself. Uh, thank you for having me. So this just came out with KFB. It's part of their What Queer Reading series. Blue Dusted Fag Ring. Girl Trash, Talk Trash, Seclusion Making Brats. Placeholder for a name. That Polonius guy on the cock ring. The most beautiful toilet. Remember your epithets and tie up your tyrannies. I should have told you that which, when a woman, solids falling off the place, a would-be better, in low light, in low steel. I got dressed, and then the thought of being somewhere. 
Someone says, dribble, cold butter, a misstep, and hierophany. Divine me this, little sh**. Lateness is tragedy in miniature. Try to think about removals. Hurl the body against confidence, stepping out onto the street, the sound of lowering blinds, rest a noun, lying flat on the table, hard laundry, a coin purse. I drape your name over a canvas and rock and tell the tides to go slow. Locked in choreography, a still burn. Homunculus-lipped, gnashed teeth, Tupperware, ozone. Dizzying, it calls for warm tea and sculpted attitude. Propositions disguised as analogies. If winter, then morning. I don't know when I'll outgrow my own voice. Something about cataclysm and enormity when you put your head to it, to think through it. Lately begging on the guardrail. What's new in you? Had a tantrum, then a sandwich. We want to look at what moves us, melodic, mixed. It goes on for days, ringing. I'm bigger, sleazy, taut and rambunctious. So left, left, and then the heel burn. Cool to you. Hey, sister, sister, give up weariness for coin, coin doggerel, then likeness. On the bus home, a terabyte of waiting. Effigy bursts, clacks and ass, daring, aspic, crunch tomb, chamomile. Think alive and glisten. If obscurity comes in wanting, trickles the task bar for low ingenuity in summer's set. At a certain time, sensual poetry ceases to exist. Hushness for your longing when the mood strikes, an open fist moving through the air, ringing, 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 voluptuous calling, ciders more. Every novel is autobiography, every poem an amendment. Elixir is a word I try to keep just. Good grief. What makes a name worth crying over? What makes grief good? Something on the ballast, secret noises, or a wish tied to a stick. A name like love dampens charisma, moves necessity toward orderliness, chokes audacity, and slices mirth. If it is descriptive keenness, lie among the tarnished. A history of the proprioceptive. Camphor dining, catastrophe and rot. Nobody wants to see how one proposes so much talking. There shouldn't be reaving in people, but having gotten good graces with which to live, how late to be tender. I thought I found clarity in the line, but she spoke in stanzas, arranged and perspicacious. One felt oneself ridged and fetter by asking what was compromised in understanding. Big books and big documents. I just want a good phone plan, a good swerve in plot, radiant skin, a milkshake. Broaden me into churlishness, bless me with bad attitude, adorn me with wickedness, Suck me with ingots, rust me into corners, polish me toward victory. Not many of my poems have titles, but this one does, and they don't tell you anything about anything. Uh, this one's called Captain America Goes Down to the Peonies. I have not felt blood ripen nor caramel slicked upwards of the sort. The lockbox was there where my stomach used to be. How do you know what comfort is? You build several altars and call them all home. You direct your hopes and fears toward them and keep everything else quiet. I bend my voice over a stupid rock, something like divination with boredom and rage and humor and glamour. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night, good night, good night. Okay, now this is the very long sentence. Lately I think it through before doubling the speech. Distillations across itemized threshold could turn the suck in. A mere decay announces itself. The question, always the burning question, how can I best write about bad behavior? If the thought is glanced upon, no lookers or onlookers, pay tribute to the howl, someone says, code is binary. If this, then that. What is the alternative to quantifications of the soul? 
inventive, a scale for purity, for the shoot is in walking distance, but I've so much tack already covered. Rust bend your hydraulic phenomena. I won't dust in further. I've got the got. It's hard to know, as you must certainly can relate. What makes doing a doing? Wrath comes in. Behemoth, ataraxy, cancellation. The doing of putrid speak. How it is to be enveloped by discourse. Le fou piquant. Stories, all these stories, they're endless. They say nothing. Speak. Circle about the same dramatic wounds. Misery, temptation, expediency, charisma, turnings. To be representative as manners such as property, ambition, directness, attention, the smirk. It's all to be fair, a teacher once said. I'd gone on about it, on for too long. I should have let the smoke in, suffocate the dill on the horse pot. Lacrimose, it's a word he never uses. Stuns, but he's often just that, stunned. Or was it stunted, meticulous growth along the anchor? I've done right by you, demand after demand. It makes weariness sleepy, though portentous lie wakeful. Return to the scene of reading as if done in by criminality, infantile keystone, wailing or walling. It's all the same, wounds and misery. I've said it all, God, I've said it all. But I can't stop talking like it won't, it just won't on the plastic heel of ammunition. What makes it easy to divide recklessness from pleasantry? Is there pain, someone asks? No, just irritation, fleshiness. I've got myself divided, you know. The talk in them is in me. All talk, all. If it could be cured by a look, take a hand, then another. Comfort separates us from thinking. It is possible to turn over on the same mathematical exegesis and still encounter novelty. What is lukewarm? What is? It is, again, so much doing. I've sat in it and thought in it. Heuristics of the flesh. Know it all for wanting. The break in me. Is it time then? Time for? The time is out of joint, naturally. Yes, naturally. So many dividends to split your face over. Hamlet or Antigone. I was never one to trust book burning. And then it comes, quilted in speech. Let me ask, writhing behind the curtain, that Polonius guy, several melted cashews, dismell along the bleaker. What is gormless is made turn to shoe, you mean Sean. The brevity of your seductions unsheath me quickly, dearly. If it is a long, natural phenomenon that one can decipher the necessities of truth, let me enter, jostled, flip back, christening, christening, so much christening, hum in the first provider. Recommendations on account of mood, expectations, what is heralded. Am I tired? I'm tired. Insouciant vagrant, a situation, a tortoise made clean, a buffoon for your disliking, pork chops, soon dismayed, writhing and pleather, wood, glass and temperament. Soon it'll all be over, soon. Could you really mean back there? Japanese cypress, a book in a hitched lock, turntables, writing scoffs, lacquered eye upon nail, Horace's stuff. It would seem that within the seam of it, a hurdling stick is lifted by grace. A bruise is a sucking dish. How far now before the mood strikes, or does a mood strike or simply go awry? The indelible question is one whose anticlimactic docking serves her too. Wonderments, accoutrements, bleached burden, and his. Is it a question? Is it a trick question? What transpires in the confidence of literacy? Do you think it's time for a pre-lunch nap? The horticles of spirulina, sunbeam, florets, noose, bronzer, echinacea. Thank you. First of the second half, we have Adrian de Leon, is an Avogadan Southern, Ilocano writer, and cultural educator from Manila by way of Scarborough. He teaches Philippine history and culture in classrooms, museums, and martial art gyms. While finishing his PhD in history at the University of Toronto, he teaches in the Department of English at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Adrian's first poetry collection, Rouge, was published by Mywensi House in 2018. He has just completed his second poetry collection, Barangay, and is at work on his first novel. With fellow Eastside writers Taya Mutanji and Natasha Ramutar, Adrian is editing a mixed genre literary anthology of emerging Scarborough writers. Exciting. Okay, please welcome Adrian. <laughs> so this is my first pivot um, reading and third attending because it's like, and y'all are dope, so I'm really excited too. 
start reading. So I got copies of the baby back there, and I thought I'd read a few. These are really participatory poems, which kind of make which made them fun to read, um, write as well, and conceptualize. And I think there are different dimensions that come out when I read them. So um, Rouge um, looks like if you folks take the TTC, it looks like the TTC. <laughs> Um, of a stop called Rouge, which doesn't exist. And I, what I do is like I use the form of the TTC itself, the form of infrastructure, um, to really respond to the 2012 Danzig shooting um, in Scarborough, in my hometown, um, in my in my neighborhood where I grew up. Um, and thinking about, you know, like not just the intersections of media representations, the violence and anti-black racism um, and classism in the city, but also, you know, what does transit have to do with it, right? The, 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 the fact that we don't have, that, that Toronto, quote unquote, doesn't have access not not just not just to scarborough itself but empathy with people who live in scarborough right so um i'm also moving to la in august to start a great job and so i think i'll not stop writing about scarborough because i like preemptively miss it um first and so oh yeah and then there's one poem for every ttc stop in here so that's cool uh so let me read queen first can I get a little political here? Yes, it's me again. Sorry, but it won't be a poem about the fun, fun, fun of Queen Victoria and how this street used to be named Lot Street before old Vicky usurped the park lots of their rightful throne. Tag along. Let me show you another lot. Scammers, the lot of them, usurping the masses of their spatulas and tongs. Get off at the station at the Eaton Center exit. Look left. See all the fun sunshine of the rich tree? Do the charred crusts of Angus patties caress your nose? Does the splattering of guacamole wrestle with water chestnuts and quinoa with real bite in the echo chamber of your gut? Now look right. If you've been here long enough, you'd remember the rich tree used to be across the floor. Remember the old grills, the hot trays, the inflamed steam and the steaming anger of old Eaton. Now look left. How old are those workers? Do you think you're, they're unionized? Do you think they care about being unionized? Now look right. And remember the aged hands that held your ladle of soup and tongs of pot roast, or the trained knife work of the ladies at the cakes. Exhibit A, f them all over. Eradicated any trace of their 20 years of work. Take a whiff. Smell the Marxist outcries in the air. Inhale the crappy coffee and overpriced pies. Feel your lungs and stomach walls become yes-men for those rice puddings made with love that you'll never taste again. Or maybe you don't care about contracts broken, workers caught in the tussling branches of rich trees. And by trees, I mean the bourgeoisie. You know, the bourgeoisie, we hear it in sociology all the time. But I see you don't care. In which case, go f yourself. Sound the alarm bells on your way out. Thanks. That is, yeah, Hirsch Tree. Uh, the song one's Leslie. On Sundays, Daddy used to drive us down to let Ikea start our day. A tank of gas would cost us more than eggs and meat. Potatoes, too. Those golden wedges meant to make us feel deliciously at home, but neither mom nor dad would dare to cook potatoes without beef and lard from cans or big old helpings from the tube of Tex-Mex or whatever else the South could grind and clobber in memoriam of Alamo. Hmm. Maybe home is one of those weird Swedish names they stick on chairs and light bulbs. Cushions, blankets, even meals. To stretch that tank of gas, we'd spend a whole day after Catholic Mass to stuff our plates and faces with those home fries. Eggs and bacon. I think that home was in those fries. We stayed so long at times that even janitors would get to know our names and stuffed faces. The chairs, the beds, the showrooms, our playground. The setting sun, it darkens Scarborough first. Ikea candles, rays of light, burn brightly. This one's a, uh, okay, so does anyone commute east of Young? Yeah, yeah, loud and proud, there you go. Um, has anyone ever commuted east of Young before in their life? Okay, does anyone know what the Bloor Danforth viaduct is? So when you have your phone, what's what, and you're riding through you know, the Bloor Danforth, what, what do we get? Say the word. Signal. Right? So this is a participatory poem. So I'm going to point at y'all, I'm going to make y'all stop. And when I do this, I want y'all to go chugga, 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 chugga. <laughs> so this is called, so it looks like this, and you got to read it overleaf. And it takes about, um, the full experience is about five people to read. Um, and it's different, you know, like different texts or different voices or different things that, that different the kind of messages or thoughts that people have on the Bloor Danforth Videx, this little moment of signal infrastructural freedom. All right, ready? Next stop, Broadview. Hello, mom, yes, I'm at Castle Frank. I'll be home soon, just loading. Wait, okay, I'm going back in the tunnel now, love you. 
Please wait, honey. I'm not watching the Olympics. I'm on the train. No, I don't really care for the live tweets anyway. BRB tunnel again. It's not technically downtown anymore because you're crossing the Don River. See, the Don River divides real Toronto from that other shit to the east. Getting so dark outside and I still have to shovel the snow. Maybe I could hire a neighbor to shovel it out for me. Arriving at Bravo. That was great. Y'all are great. Y'all are great. All right. I'll read a couple more from this. Let me see. Anyone been to Warden Station before? Um, what, what's, what's there for like a dollar, a dollar fifty? Beef tatties, right? Yeah, right? Cocoa bread, you know, you add a little dollar, add like some toppings inside while you're waiting for the bus or the train. So, Warden. The silver Scarborough snow tumbles into billowing tunnels below. Falling flakes of yellow patty pillowed in the toasty bosom of cocoa bread. I'll read one more from this book, and it's Lawrence East. And then I'll read a couple from a new book. That's cool. Yeah, sweet. Lawrence East. From the ochre concrete face south of the bridge, four pillars around my newfound nest, I felt like a king. The mocha-rusted tracks stretched across my kingdom as far as my fresh newcomer corneas could see over the windowsill. Just days before, it was a duvet of West Philippine sea clouds caressing the soulful steel of our vessel, gentle oceanic cautions of the many blankets yet to come. Quilts hung from Lawrence East classrooms, bedsheets accidentally gathered in nightmare tosses, sleeping bags between spruce and street corners, shrouds when ashes could not be strewn. Not yet, at five years old, would Canada's crooning throat haunt me. My tongue ticked stubbornly, hardened without aspiration. My rhotics rolled freely still, like white train over Kennedy tracks, like toddler kings back into bed. So I'll read some stuff from a new one. Um, so barangay um, um, means two things in Tagalog and um, Ilocano, uh, two native languages in the Philippines. Um, it means an outrigger boat, so you know those those big giant canoes with like the you know plain things on the side for ocean sailing to stabilize them. Um, but it also means the basic unit of Philippine social life. So um, when you think about Philippine families, villages, they're mobile, right? And so what, if, what do I think about mobile kinship in the age of globalization? You know, Filipinos as you know migrant workers in the Middle East um, on lands not our own, such as this one here in Turtle Island. So that's what Barangay is about. Um, but I also really hyper-locate it on Scarborough. And think about Scarborough as a natural space as well. You know, the Bluffs, the Rouge Valley, um, hell, even, even, even graffiti under um, the overpasses in the valleys as well. So this one's called On Scarborough. First, has anyone read Brother by David Chayandi? <laughs> so so there are two things. One, I was on a Fulbright scholarship to go abroad. Um, and I found myself missing home so much that I wrote a book about missing home <laughs> called Barangay. But number two, I was inspired by this quote, and I'll read it first by Charyandi. The Rouge Valley, it was a wound in the earth, a scar of green running through our neighborhood, hundreds of feet deep in some places, a glacial valley that existed long before anything called Scarborough. So that runs itself throughout the entire book. On Scarborough. We blackened, browned, and yellowed homes on valleys not our own. We mushroom from the spores dispersed from patria to pools of blood that mingle upon native land, desperately kneading, stir-frying, pickling homelands into life, matsutakes in the clearing of Toronto's shrapnel, while mouths that cut their teeth on self-professing expertise scavenge plated work between our fingers, yelping at insurgency, stealing stories etched on calloused knuckle skin. So this one is called, um, for context, so Tugang in uh, native language uh, called Bicolano, um, which is um, on my father's side as well, uh, means brother. Um, and uh, this one's called, and this is when I went uh, with my friend, Pat, best friend Patrick on vacation to Hawaii. And it was his first time really being able to send himself on vacation after he was able to have you know, his own job and just seeing him break out in joy and not need to hustle for his mother and his brother for once. So I wrote this for him. Tugang, I loved you when your composure hardened from the kilns of our inaugural shores, eroded in the azure of our common sea. We bore precious witness to your volta as your skin sank away its spreadsheet schemes and YLI waves. 
Amidst the dispossessing glass, our brother Blowfish gaped at when he shored his final journey into sand, your corporate shudder burrowed into healing hands. You outrigged west unto our archipelago, expecting smokestack blankets to gray your Balakbayan sojourn into fleeting night. Instead, Edsa's pepper atmosphere seasoned your humming reveries, shaping into slender oak your dreadnought cocooned until your chords rebirthed their effervescent two-tone wings. Dugang seized the hymns our common copper strings suture into trans-Pacific kin. And when these etches greet your eyes, you'll rustle concrete with Adidas toes that might wish the fallen moringa in the market were oak and birch of rouge instead. When Mandaluyong steel screeches twixt our city's jagged progress, imagine us a new letter, two curving lines that meet depending on which home we scrawl and sing into blessed existence. A touch that kisses heaven, let it smoke the incense from the thurible of Mayon, our homeland's sacred cone. If it kisses trout-filled tributaries down below, may we sing again in the auburn valleys of our autumn dreams. I've got one more for y'all. Um, so on that last one, trout-filled tributaries, it um, foreshadows um, a narrative poem that I have um, about when I was five and it was um, uh, soon after my parents uh, and I had moved to Scarborough. And we went on this hiking trip um, to a place that has long since eroded and we can't find the path anymore. It's on the bluffs. So this one's called Morningside, or This is the Way the Road Ends. That thrilling vertigo atop the bluffs, down the grassy drop, the deep green gash named Rouge, sighing against the cliff faces, did not always call to me. Five years fresh on Danzig Street, farthest south meant railroad tracks. Dimples blessed by melanin that spoke our home into our smiles, jumped like minnows at back of bus. I was content to cower beneath comforters. Comforters are Luzon accents sweetly sang of the wounded city, not my own. Nanai and Tatai shook me from my fleecy cave. Tupperware and no frills bags, spoons and forks snuggling paper towel. A hike to Morningside's end, only four blocks south, or five, counting railroad tracks. These blocks, I quickly learned, were Scarborough blocks. My weary calves, accustomed to the minute distances of Manila's dense barangays, wobbled when I hoisted myself over the metal barrier. The offending object, a hardy bolt head. I hid my limp behind my corduroy, corrugated leggings hiding a cut gashed as landscape sutured by Orton Park Bridge. A faint crevice still burdens my right knee from its first grating against the roadside steel. A winding path into the birch cautiously called us into itself. In Manila, our barangay arches greened with oxidation. Here, the verdant ravine grinned in midsummer glow. I clamped my molars shut to quell the wincing as we teetered down. My father, boy of Bataan, mansplained proper hiking steps to city kids he brought onto the bluffs. Our ginger strides abruptly flattened. The azure southern coast of Scarborough gleamed against the sticks and sands. I think my parents missed the sea. For two hours, the soy sauce and the sinuses of our hands tasted like the ocean shores of Bataan. I watched my tatai deeply sniff the Lake Ontario air and blink away a thought as saline as his childhood Mariveles River. My nanai held the bangus fish by its belly and its crispy back, as if she just snagged the catch from the Pasig River of her mother's dreams. I don't remember how we climbed back up. My limp should not have carried me back home. Before I crawled to bed, a foreign bottle glistened atop my pillow in the lamplight, Neosporin. You can't hide down anymore. The gate once spread agape, now an elusive silver, now an elusive sliver that brave souls risk with tattered clothes. The path disappeared beneath the claws of ashy branches, grips unable to weather winds of late and storms that bruise the bluff's rocky faces acquiesced to crumbly gashes, its scabs tumbling into churning foam below. We climb the bluffs now only with our best by eyes, whirring high above our viewfinders, propellers seizing views beyond our most audacious hiking dreams. 
16 years after that picnic, a river trout hurried past my ganja hazy eyes. Its frantic silver body sketched sinusoidal paths against the loamy palms of the rouge. It leapt for grassy knolls atop the shores, flopping over its watery go train tracks, hiking down its own morning side, making believe an ocean at the end of its road. Thank you. Last up for tonight, we have a friend of Pivot, but also a friend of every other reading series in the city. <laughs> uh, Therese Pierre. Yeah. Therese Pierre is a writer, editor, and organizer based in Toronto. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in the Heart House Review, Bad Nudes, Verdancy's Journal, Cosmonauts Avenue, and Train, a poetry journal amongst others. She has been a submissions curator and editor of the Toronto Public Library's Young Voices magazine and the University of Toronto's Spectator Spectatorial. And she is currently the poetry editor of Augur magazine, a Canadian speculative and surrealist literature and art magazine. In September, Therese became a co-host of Shabu Share, a poetry reading series that emphasizes diversity in all forms. And this spring, she will become a co-organizer of Slant, a reading series that emphasizes social justice. Therese lives in Toronto with her family and cat. Please give a warm welcome to Therese. Yay. Hi, thank you for coming. Um, thanks to Pivot, thanks to uh, Michelle and Kinesia and um, to all the other awesome writers that read before me, um, especially Adrian. Like, I, I don't know how to follow you. I, I, I don't know why I said I wanted to go last. Are you recording this or do you want like paparazzi shot? Whatever you want, man. Like, uh, okay. All these cameras, God. Okay, <laughs> so um, Jim Johnson's not here, so I'm just gonna read you some poems from my chapter, um, the manuscript at least. But I've been like reading these like for the past year, so. So this first one is called Surface Area. A love lowercase, wedged between comfort and cognition that steals rest and drives miles into the desert. I aim for the summit, for change, for weathered, to line my hands with sand. I'll keep coming here till we terraform the moon, light on the cracks of our brains, type and token voyeurs of each other's folds in motion. Stability spreads, evening cool, like arms around the first child, faith in the first mirage brought into the real. You mold a gift in me, made of hard white rock and the safety of distance as deep as the earth is old. Subject. And yet again, the sun is not afraid of anything. I too present no threat to the buffeted comfort you purchased that time I covered the blue flowers on my cheeks with an invisible dusting. Everything the light touches is something to conquer, to contain. I am in a brass container. Your fingers brush the edges. I can see the inside of your nose into your brain. You made sure the lamp was decorated well. So well, I can't ignore your desires. You throw dresses at me, wine and rouge for days, sharp diamonds that sparkle red seeds on my skin. You rub me often. Outside you insist the world has ended. The sun has shrank in fear, and so too will I, barrier free, you free. But windows are wide, you provided those. Nothing should be more transfixing than your story, and yet. Expanse. Each beach trip is a time. You are the rocky landscape I pick my way across. I want to go to the water, but you insist we won't spend long here. I go anyway. The wind is hot and welcoming. I see the ocean change its mind, fold in and over itself with the sound of punishment. By the truck, you are a black pebble, within pelting distance, surely, but my back is to you, to bear small, shamed skin for a moment, so the sun can see it. I have, al I have always envied nature for its expanse, but we are the same. So now I have some like newer ones, I guess. <laughs> um, 
I work in a library, um, which I which is like one third of my personality that I keep mentioning to everyone. So, <laughs> so um, what I like to do um, when I'm supposed to be shelf reading, and shelf reading is when you go and you organize the books, make sure they're in order. So what I like to do instead of that is I go to the I go to the poetry section, and I enjoy picking out the poets I know, finding their books. Um, so finding Liz Howard's book, finding Jim Johnstone's book, finding Adrian's book, um, just be like, yeah. And one like, and just like one day, one day. Um, so this poem is called 819.12, or the Dewey class for Canadian poetry. It's like smart, see, it's clever. <laughs> um, it's ironic, but someday I hope to be here. My surname spaced evenly along the spine, nestled between small gods. No, not gods. Real people. People I saw last night at the reading when they pressed their lips to the microphone and spoke slowly, holding the audience in their universe of song and shape. If we sit with our shoulders together at the crowded bar, am I elevated? An odd pride might accompany that maple leaf sticker, unlike ever before. I am here and of this country, my mother insists. Red and sharp on the shelf, rows and rows of them, of us. The library carries every one of us, makes us distinguishable amidst other residents. Um, this one is called Mitosis. I wanted to write a poem about um, the, the, the replication of the cycle of abuse as like with the cell cycle as well, but then that got too complicated. So, <laughs> um, so I just wrote a poem and then called it mitosis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I don't have time. Anyway, mitosis. In the mirror, my mother's eyes assess my chest that's a feta with dark skin, the dip of flesh. They are not pleased, or they cannot see glossy goal held up at all ages, burning the back of my neck, reveling in the yellower, yellower ones, their thin bodies, thin lips, who no doubt had their own righteous targets. I stood no chance, but what I asked for changed constantly, turning inward and onto itself, painting with tears, digging a cavernous grave we both live in. In this deepness, I have made stone fruit, a dark berry projecting itself from the tree and clawing to a different earth. I so want to reach out from behind the glass and kiss her face. Uh, and then I have one, two, I have three more that I wrote on my phone, um, but I printed it out so I wouldn't have to use my phone. This one is called Dream Home. We are moving. We want to find a place that is big enough for us not to see each other when we go to opposite ends after a fight. Wooden floors that I can stomp my feet against, ample doors to slam, walls thick enough that you can't make holes in them when you punch them, thick enough that neighbors can't hear, can't talk. There must be three bedrooms, one for us, one for our office. The third is for guests, but also where you sleep when your very presence is a match against the acid in my stomach. It must fit a cupboard, wide enough to store some of your shirts, your shoes. The place must not be on a high floor, maybe the third or the fourth. When our words are sugared, when the touch of your skin sets my, on mine sets me ablaze, I imagine we have a child and I, pregnant, could not walk up several flights of stairs should the elevator break down. There must be a balcony for me to sit and contemplate leaving you. <laughs> A wide ledge to rest my wine glass on. The view must be sophisticated, yet serene. Something overlooking a park or a quaint intersection where people walk around like they are totally invested in their lives. This must remind me of how much I love you, how I didn't settle, I chose, I consented. But nothing too expensive. Our parents are helping us with the down payment. Um, so I have two, two last ones. Um, I've started writing um, speculative poetry recently because um, I'm a speculative poetry editor, so I figured I should just write, I should write that uh, <laughs> if that's what I edit. Um, uh, so yeah, um, it's, it's literal. It's not like a metaphor or anything. 
Um, so I'll just read them. This first one, uh, it has no title because I wanted to title, title it something, but that has too much uh, cultural significance. Um, so I decided to remove that title and now it's just untitled. Everything here bleeds blue. Iron not tinging the tips of needles, staining gauze after gunshot, but carbon, carbon just the same. The man who flew the ship, you call him master, lies supine under the dashboards while he communes with the stars. Nobody who lives here on this new rock owns anyone else, never has. The mountains remind you of earth. There is a freshness in that they've yet to be scaled, mined for hope, innovated to death. Three weeks here and you are no, longer and you are no closer to charting the people forcing a schema into something so lovingly defiant. You like that you can't understand their language, that you find other ways to relay your needs and instructions. You let them touch your hair, something you'd never let earth people do. One of them gives you strange fruit and you bring it to your mouth until master swats it away, opining about poison and gavagai. At night, their planet's version of night, you sneak away to join them for music under a flame that is also water. Their bodies are their own and each other's. Ecstasy is its own language, a series of swirling joints and bulbs. It is attractive because it is foreign. Also foreign is the idea that you have a body too, that your body can be other people's bodies if you choose it. By the third hour, you decide you want to die here. The man in the ship has supplies to last a few years, but the landscape here shimmers like a cup overflowing with diamonds. And you can run now. You can even fly. Uh, and the last poem I have is also a speculative poem, but it's like, I wrote it like with faith in mind um, because it mentions uh, Grenada and Faith Woo! Faith and I are both, we're, our families are both from Grenada. So when I only read like poems about Grenada when Faith is in the room. So... <laughs> Uh, this also has no title, because um, I'm just so bad at them. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, so it's my last poem. Not a lustful fisherman, someone caught in the battle between man and nature, his eyes filling with ocean, but a small black boy dragging a stick against the evening shores of Grand Dance Grenada. She is leaning against the pier post in the sea, so he sees her human first, her dark skin, her hair high and wide, pearled and seaweeded, brown-tinged in the light. He almost confuses her for his mother, wandering again. He calls out to her in his child voice. Her voice is the entire Caribbean. The splash of flying fish, the mosquito whines, tinkling of steel bands, drums in the mass he's too young to play in. Jump down to me, she says, arms held out. You are like my blue black boy my sea child. And before he knows it, the ocean is on him. She is kissing his cheeks, a hand through his waves. He wraps his legs around her hips, feels the cool sweep of fish, like the ones his grandmother buys in the carinage. Their shiny gray scales, dead eyes. His mouth opens, and oh. Now the coast splits the sea from the sky his laugh mixing and becoming one with the green wash, the orange clouds, the symphony of this warm nature wrought with a violent history, water bringing and taking away. In the distance, the pea dove asks. Thank you. For more information on the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca.